You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Blessed be you, our God, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the wonderful and powerful Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that we can gather as your people to exalt and worship your name. Your name is holy. May we respect and revere the name of the Lord Jesus as holy. You are other. You are unique. You are perfect in all of your ways. And Lord, it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ who suffered in our place and faith in the blood that we are cleansed and qualified to access and enter into your holy presence. So thank you that we can do that now, and we ask in the name of Jesus that you would speak through your word, that we would heed it and obey it and glorify you by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, I'm opening up my Bible to Colossians chapter 1. I would ask you to join me there as well. Today we're going to consider verse 24 to verse 29. I've always appreciated since the time I've been here at our church that uh, we try and be upfront about who we are and what we believe and what it's like to be a part of the family of faith here at Harvest. That's why we have these classes, step one and step two. Step one's happening next week. And if you're visiting, this is a chance where you can hear exactly who we are. There's no fine print to who we are and what we believe. We want to give it to you all up front. And I'm thankful that in following Jesus in general, there's no fine print because I really like just clarity. Uh, I kind of uh, laugh a little bit when I see the fine print that I see in commercials on TV or in like coupons or deals that you can get in a store. Maybe sometime you tried to go into a store one day and you wanted to buy this deal. You saw this deal and you came in and said, hey, can I redeem this deal? But the clerk said, hey, you missed the fine print. Don't you see that? This is only available if you spend $100. If you spend $100 and it's the fifth Tuesday of the month, under the light of a crescent moon, and your middle name is Robert Sorry. Didn't you read that there? Or uh, prescription drug commercials are pretty notorious for this, aren't they? Right? Doesn't it horrible being bald? Isn't this man who's not bald just so confident and so popular? And don't you want to be like him? Take our prescription drug and you can live the non-bald life. Side effects may include ingrown toenails, rashes where you didn't know you could get a rash, weight gain where you didn't know you can gain weight. Be not bald. (laughs) Fine print's not fun. Following Jesus has no fine print, though. It's really clear right from the front. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. In Colossians chapter 1, we've been learning about the supremacy of Christ in all things. How he created all things and he's reconciling all things. He is restoring all things back to peace with him. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have been restored to peace with Christ. And now God is calling you to be a peacemaker in this world. The commitment to the mission of Christ is high. That's actually the idea of our message today from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. Joining in the mission of Christ requires immense commitment. 
And we're going to see the level of commitment that the Apostle Paul had for this mission. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29 is going to teach us the four personal commitments of Paul to the mission of Christ. And we as a church are going to learn them, and I pray that we are going to adopt them so that we can join into the work that Christ is doing, restoring all things to peace with himself. So as we do, would you stand with me for, to honor God in the reading of Scripture? Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. You may be seated, church. Four personal commitments from the Apostle Paul that we can learn so we can join in the immense commitment of the mission of Christ. Here's the first commitment, a commitment to suffer. Wow, good start, right? A commitment to suffer, so do it joyfully. Look at the text again, verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. Now when you're studying scripture, church, it's important that you ask questions about your reading, and by asking questions you can make observations, and by connecting those observations together you can grasp the meaning of the text. So as I was studying this text this week, there was a couple questions that I asked of it, and let's ask those questions together now. What does Paul mean when he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? How is Paul's suffering for the sake of the Colossians? These are a people that he's never met before. Maybe, like, if you have a child who has to go to the hospital and they're in pain, it's going to cause you some pain too. Because one, you see your child suffering, but two, you're going to have to go back and forth to the hospital every day, to the hospital, to home, to work. And it's very clear how through, that you're connected to them and your suffering for your child is, is for their sake. But these people have never seen Paul. Paul's never seen them. How is his suffering for their sake? Well, Paul has this unique position in the mission of Christ. He was called an apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles are those nations that are non-Jewish outside of the boundaries of the borders of Israel. And Paul was an apostle to, apostle to the Gentiles. As an apostle, he was a witness, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. God gave him the unique task to be a witness for the resurrection for the nations around Jerusalem who had not known Jesus. So though Paul had never been in Colossae, this city, this was a Gentile city in a Gentile nation. So even though he had never seen them, he kind of represented them as the apostles of the Gentiles. So though he was actually in prison while he was writing this letter, and in prison in another city, 
city, he, his sufferings in that city were actually vicariously for their sake because he represented them as their witness, as an apostle to them. That's why their sufferings, his sufferings was for their sake. Here's another question. This one's really important. How is Paul's suffering filling up? Do you see that there in verse 24? How is his suffering filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? It's kind of a bold statement, isn't it? I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Is Paul saying that there was something that lacked in Jesus' suffering that he needed to fill up or complete? That, that's actually not what he's saying here. When Paul's saying that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, it's kind of like this. If your boss comes to you and says, hey man, your work is lacking right now. What he's probably telling you is that your performance isn't meeting the standards that your job expects of you. You really got to step it up. But if your boss comes to you and says, you're lacking in work right now, what he's saying is that your workflow is just low right now, but soon probably more, jo- more tasks will fill up your workflow and more of your time will soon be filled up. That's more of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. By saying that he is filling up what is lacking, Paul isn't saying that Christ's affliction lacked in performance for us. Rather, he knows that as Christ suffered affliction, so there was a measure of more suffering and affliction that must be filled up after, until Christ returns. There's a measure of suffering that still remains to be filled up before Christ returns, like the measure of an hourglass. The scripture actually indicates that before Christ returns, there's more suffering that must be filled up, and Paul is helping contribute to fill up this measure. Isn't that kind of humbling that Christ isn't going to return until a certain amount of suffering happens? The Bible actually indicates this in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, there are martyrs in heaven. Martyrs are those who gave their lives for the message of the gospel. And the martyrs ask God, when are you going to avenge us? When are you going to show justice against those who killed us? And this is how God responds in Revelation 6 verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers, should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is really humbling. That in God's eyes... There's a number. There's a measure of martyrs that must experience martyrdom before Christ returns. This is really humbling. But here's another unique question. How could Paul have joy in this? That's what he first says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He was writing this from prison. The apostle Paul was beaten and dragged out of a city because they thought he was dead. The Apostle Paul had been shipwrecked and mocked and whipped. And how could he say he had joy? Well, I believe just like Paul, we can have joy in the midst of our sufferings when we live our lives to please God rather than pleasing man. 
Church, God's word does say in 1 Timothy chapter 4, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life, you shouldn't be expected when you face opposition. You shouldn't be expected, you shouldn't be surprised when you're mocked or ridiculed or ostracized. But you should remember who your aim to please is. If we're trying to please man, then we're trying to please people who think in a backwards way. In Isaiah chapter 5, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's what our, our world says. Our world, in our world, tolerance is celebrated and truth is just not tolerated. So it's not surprising when a culture that idolizes personal choice and personal autonomy kicks back when people tell them that there's a higher power that they need to submit to. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ, you will experience suffering. But though others may knock you down for it, and though you may feel knocked down now, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 says, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Christian, if you want to live a godly life, you're going to face opposition. They'll dislike you because they dislike the message. But if you remember that the, the world thinks in a backwards way, but God blesses the one who endures in persecution, you can have joy. Because you know that even though others disapprove of you, God approves of me. And by that faith, you can have joy in the commitment to suffer for Christ. Joining in the mission of Christ requires immense commitment. It requires a commitment to suffer, so do it joyfully. It also requires a commitment to serve. This is the second of Paul's four commitments to the mission of Christ. A commitment to serve, so do it faithfully. Look at uh, chapter 1 again in verse 25. It says, Of which, the church, I, Paul, became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When the Apostle Paul describes himself a minister, he's calling himself a servant. That's what the word minister means. And when he says he's a minister according to the stewardship of God, he's actually using familiar language that would have been understood in their context of a minister according to stewardship is like a servant, or a, maybe in our context we'd understand, a butler in a house, Right? A butler who is entrusted with a specific task, assigned with a specific task within the operations of a house, right? Batman had a butler, didn't he? 
who was Batman's butler? It's Alfred. There's some pretty important things that happened on in Batman's house. Wayne Manor was pretty big and they had parties, but they had the Batcave. And someone needed to take care of the Batcave. And there's no one else that Batman can trust except for Alfred. And he was assigned to take care of all these things. And no one else knew what was happening. But Alfred was specifically signed and had a specific assigned task. And Paul recognized in the house of God and all the things that happens within God's house, I have a specific task. I am called to serve in the house of God. And he says what he was called to do. He was called to make the word of God fully known. And then he calls the word of God an interesting thing. He calls it a mystery. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What does that mean? What does it mean that the word of God, the gospel, is a mystery? It was Paul's job to proclaim the mystery. But by calling it a mystery, Paul doesn't say that the message of Jesus is like unknowable or some like natural phenomena that science can't explain and we just don't know what's happening. By calling it a mystery, he actually kind of is explaining that the story of the good news of Jesus is kind of like um, a movie that's unfolded where you thought that the whole time there was um, this guy helping the hero. There was someone helping the hero and he looked like a good guy. But then all of a sudden there was a twist in the plot. And then the guy helping the hero who you think is good stabs the hero in the back and he's the bad guy? The, that, it was a mystery that he was the bad guy, but then it was revealed or excuse, that he actually is bad. And that's kind of the idea of the mystery. There was something hidden about the message of Jesus that's now revealed about the message of Jesus. And Paul's job was to make that known. So what was it? What is the mystery? Well, it's this. The mystery that was hidden for ages and was made known through the gospel is this. Access to a relationship with God is available to anyone through faith in Christ. The rich, glorious promise that God gave to Abraham, that God gave to Isaac, that God gave to Jacob, that God gave to the nation of Israel is now available to anyone from all nations who would believe in Jesus Christ. And the blessing is the hope of the promise of God with you and God in you, the hope of glory. Church, this blessing, this promise is the red carpet of red carpets. It's the summit of summits to know God and to have God alive in you and to know that Christ in me is my hope of glory. This was hidden before Christ came, but when Christ came, it was revealed that anyone can have access to this. And Paul's job, what a job, was to make that word known. And just as Paul was assigned to a specific task in the mission of Christ, so all of us have been assigned to a task within the mission as well. Paul was called to a task. You've been called to a task. 
at any given time, I'm trying to read books. I like reading. I want to grow. I'm reading this book right now. It's called The Power of Prayer by R.A. Torrey. In 2019, I'm trying to learn a lot about prayer and my personal solitude of Bible readings through the Psalms. And every Sunday, I lead a prayer meeting down in our discipleship room from 7.45 to 8.45, and we're praying for you. We're praying for these services. And uh, whatever book I'm reading, um, I have this bookmark uh, and I use it with whatever book I'm reading. And uh, Laura, you're in the front row. Can you read out as best you can what that says there? Jason Locke Intern. Jason Locke Intern. This is a name tag that I had when I was first hired at the church in 2010. In 2010, I had a 10-week summer internship here and I learned a lot. It was great. I did youth ministry. I helped a Paul Whittingstall prepare his sermons and do study. I had an anxiety attack trying to leave a kid's camp. It was horrible, but a joy at the same time. Um, but I keep this name tag as my bookmark as a reminder for me because I'm not an intern now. Uh, but it's a reminder for me that whatever, wherever I am, however I'm serving, true greatness in God's eyes isn't position of influence, but it's posture of service. What matters to God isn't name recognition unless we're helping others recognize the name that is above every name. And it's also a reminder of me of the story of how God brought me to this task that I have to pastor this church. And it reminds me of the task that I've been assigned. Uh, in 2007, after going to, on a mission trip to Haiti, um, I felt God was really starting to call me to do something. I didn't know what, but I just felt that God wanted to use me. So I had this token um, that I got on the trip to Haiti, and it was wood, and I carved on it um, Isaiah 6, here I am, send me. God, I don't know what you want me to do with my life, but I, here I am, just use me. That fall in 2007, I went to a university in the States, and every fall... Uh, when they start off their new semester, they have this event called the All Night of Prayer. It's, it's, uh, you're praying all night. <laughs> so I went for hours into this gym and I was just praying and I didn't have an agenda. I just wanted to seek the face of God. But at the end of that time, a friend came up to me and said, uh, what can I pray for you for? And in that moment, God put it in my heart to ask him, I, th I think God's calling me to pastoral ministry. Can you pray for me? And that started me on a trajectory to pick a degree of biblical studies, and then, and then in 2010, I did an internship, and I had that summer internship here at our church, and at the end of that internship, Paul Whittingstall offered me a job to be the youth director, and I said no, <laughs> and I thought at the time, actually, I had all these good and godly reasons to say no, but when I look back, it was actually just youthful, prideful arrogance, and like a good leader did, uh, Paul didn't say, okay, I'll look for someone else. He said, just wait and think about it, okay? So I did think about it. I went back to school because I had one year left in school. And again, I went to the all night of prayer. They had it every fall. And this time I went and I asked God, God, are you calling me to this? I told you I'm here. Send me. Is this the thing you're sending me for? Is this the thing you're assigning me for? And it, by, through prayer, the Lord made it clear to me that this was the task that God had assigned me to. And it wasn't doing what I'm doing now. It was just being in youth ministry. And God's giving me different tasks over time, but God has assigned, Paul knew he was assigned to a task. God has made it clear to me that I'm assigned to a task. But I want you to know, church, that my job isn't to do the work of ministry. That's your job. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says that he gave leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If, 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 if there's any job I have, my job is to equip you. Like, like in a football game, there are some coaches on the uh, ground watching the game. There are some coaches who sit in the box seats and watch from afar and have a headset on and tell them what plays to call. That's kind of my job. I just sit back and watch how the game's going and call the plays. You guys are in the field. You guys are in the harvest. You guys are in non-Christian workplaces. You guys are in schools with non-Christian friends. You are assigned to the work of ministry. You have been called to serve. Are you doing it faithfully? And what matters to God isn't position of influence, it's posture of service. What matters to God isn't name recognition, but that we are helping others recognize the name that is above all names. So all God wants for you is just to say, here I am. God, here I am, send me. I don't know what you want me to do, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll wash people's feet. I'll scrub the floors. I'll serve the coffee. I'll go up into the tech room and push the button where nobody recognizes that I'm actually doing the job, pushing the button, unless I do the job wrong. I'll do that. God, here I am. Send me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's what God wants. The commitment to the mission of Christ is a commitment to serve and doing it faithfully. Are you in the game or are you just sitting on the sidelines? If you have peace with Christ, you are called to be a peacemaker. If you have received the message of Christ, you are called to make the message known. A servant doesn't choose what his job to is. A servant only does the will of his master. The servant doesn't get to tell the master, hey, I'd prefer to be in the house today, not in the field, because the sun's a little hot. The servant just says, here I am, master, send me. I'm only an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. Are you being submissive to your master's will? All God wants from you is to say, here I am, send me. And if you have that attitude, and if you pursue service with a heart of holiness, you will be a choice instrument for him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God doesn't just want to use you. God wants to use you always like that chef's knife that is always sharpened, ready for any job in the kitchen. The dull knife stays in the drawer and isn't used. And if holiness isn't important to us, we're just gonna be dull knives. But if you will pursue holiness with an available readiness, God will use you in ways you that you don't even know. He will put people into your paths who need a word from Christ, who you didn't get prepared to serve, and he will use you to serve them. He will use you to serve in the background. He will use your prayers to answer in people's lives whom you have never met before if you will but pray. He's just looking for servants who are willing to do his will. Is that you? The commitment to the mission of Christ is immense. It requires a willingness to suffer, a commitment to suffer, a commitment to serve, but then also this, a commitment to speak. The commitment to the mission of Christ is one where we are committed to speak, so we should do it boldly. 
See, verse 28 shows the substance of Paul's service that he was called to. He was to make known the mystery of Christ. And what specifically was he making known? Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Proclaim means to announce about. Wherever I go, whoever I'm with, the word is being made known. And that was what Paul was doing. And, and the way that he made and announced Christ, where he's, he was warning everyone. He was teaching everyone. The idea is this. Godly correction and biblical instruction enables Christ-like edification. Warning everyone, godly correction. Teaching everyone biblical instruction. To present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ is Christ-like edification. The goal of speaking is to say, this, this isn't the way to the hope of glory. That's godly correction. This isn't the way. This is the way to the enjoy the hope of glory biblical instruction, and the result will be Christ-like edification, maturity, and Christ-like edification, maturity, is becoming what we were meant to be in Christ. That's maturity. Becoming what we were meant to be in Christ. My wife and I are expecting in June our second child, and I actually kind of blew my mind when I thought that when that second child comes, my daughter, Caroline, won't be in the nursery anymore. She's actually going to be in the toddler room. And thinking about that makes me just like a little, little daddy proud. Oh, my little girl's growing up. She's talking, learning to talk. She's walking. She's not just a little baby anymore. Healthy children should grow up. Healthy infants become healthy toddlers. I was uh, curious this week, and I looked online to try and figure out what are the technical names for some baby animals. And what I found was pretty interesting. Let's have a little Bible, or excuse me, not Bible quiz. Let's have a little National Geographic quiz, all right? I'm going to show you some pictures of some cute baby animals, and I wonder if you know the technical names for these baby animals, all right? Here's the first one. This is a baby beaver. Aw. I know, it's okay. You can do it. Aw. Do you know the technical name for a baby beaver? No, I didn't know this one either. It's a kit. Kit or kitten. A baby beaver is called a kitten. Pretty interesting. Cats are not the only ones that have babies called kittens. Here's the next one. Um, baby horse. Do you know the name of a baby horse? Foal. That's right, a foal. Or like a mare if it's a girl or colt if it's a boy, but foal. Here's the next one. Baby kangaroo. What's that one called? It's a Joey. That's right. I wonder if anyone has, I think a few, there are some people in our church with the name Joey. That's pretty cool. But we know that um, one day a little baby beaver isn't just going to be a baby beaver anymore. It's going to be a big tree chomping big beaver. We know that a little baby horse isn't going to be a foal one day. It's going to grow up to be a stampeding, like sun galloping, fast riding rodeo horse. And we know that kangaroos, the little baby Joey, is going to stay in its mom's pouch for its whole life, but it's going to get out and be a boxing, jumping, whatever else kangaroos do in Australia, kangaroo. The point is this, 
Just as we know that baby animals and infant children naturally grow up to become independent adults and full-formed human beings, so Christians in the same way should naturally grow up. They should naturally become what they were meant to be in Christ. And the way that Christians become what they were meant to be, the way that Christians grow up is when they hear people speaking Christ. When they are warned, when they are taught, godly correction, biblical instruction enables Christ-like edification. And this wasn't just Paul's job. This is our job. See, Paul says, if you turn your page to Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that we need to do the same thing. Colossians chapter 3, 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Those words teaching and admonishing are actually in the original language the same words as warning and teaching. So this was Paul's job, but it's our job too. It's your job to speak about Christ to other Christians with the goal that they and you grow up in Christ. But it's not just our job to speak in the church, it's our job to speak in the world. Look, look at chapter 4, verse 5. The Apostle Paul tells the Colossians, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Church, just as the Apostle Paul announced the message to Christians so that they may be mature and announced the message to non-Christians so that they might be saved, we are called to do this too. So I would ask you, are you speaking or are you staying silent? God has called us to speak the word. And we should do it in a way that is bold. See, chapter four, Paul used two words to describe the way he ought to speak. He says he ought to speak clearly and he ought to speak graciously. And that's what we need to do too. If we're gonna be like Paul and announce the word wherever we go, we need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Your, your mind is like a bank account. And the social dialogue that you have and the entertainment that you put in it is currency. But most of the currency that we deposit in our minds is like monopoly money. Like wherever you go, if you try to make transactions with vendors by speaking to other people, you can't actually exchange this. You can't actually use this for maturity. But if you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you'll be putting in currency that can be exchanged and used at any vendor. Whether you're with Christians or non-Christians alike, the words that you say will be able to be deposited and invested that will gain and yield a return of maturity in others and salvation in the lost. Are you letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Are you speaking clearly? Because, see, mincing words has no value. Clarity has value. But clarity doesn't mean that we need to be brash about it. Clarity doesn't mean sandwich board around my shoulders, megaphone on a soapbox at Young and Dundas, screaming. Clarity means clearly. The truth is we all are sinners. 
the truth is there's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Clarity. Clair, cl with clarity and also graciously. If you're going to be bold about the truth, if you're going to make this commitment, you need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you need to speak clearly, and you need to speak graciously. There's a reason that surgeons don't do surgery with a shotgun. Shotguns will pierce the skin, but they do surgery with a scalpel so that they can particularly cut open the place where they need to go in. And sharing the gospel can be done in such a way that's graciously, like a scalpel that opens up access to the heart and speaks exactly to someone's need. See, in Romans chapter two, it says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And we can be gracious with a scalpel when we speak clearly and when we speak kindly. Are you speaking in this way? Are you speaking at all? Listen, I know it's, it's scary. When you hear that joining in the mission of Christ requires a commitment to speak, you might be shaking in your boots right now. But remember, you're called to the work of ministry. You are an ambassador of Christ. You might be insecure and say, how could God use me? I, 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 I wasn't trained. I've never gotten on a platform and spoken before. And Moses stuttered and God used him. Uh, Balaam wouldn't listen to God, so he spoke to him through a donkey. If God can use a stuttering man and a donkey, he certainly can use you. God can use you. Will you make yourself available? Will you speak clearly? Will you speak graciously? God can use you to make other Christians mature and to see the lost saved. Joining into the mission of Christ requires an immense commitment. Suffering, serving, and then this last one, striving. Joining into the mission of Christ requires a commitment to strive. So do it resiliently. Look at the text again in verse 29. The Apostle Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Toil has this idea behind it of a hard labor. In some contexts, this Bible word toil is also used in the same context of being physically beaten and abused. Toil, like sun up, sun down, crash at home, barely get out of bed the next day, and do it all again. That's the type of striving that Paul did. And he said it's the type of work also that's like a competition. See, this idea of struggling has this, uh, this idea of athletic competition embedded into it. Some athletes compete against the clock. Some athletes have to look at their opponent in their eyes and fight them and grapple with them hand to hand. That's the idea that the Apostle Paul is saying right here. Hand to hand combat. But you might, when I, you hear me say this, be like, oh my goodness, I'm already burdened out as it says. I'm already weighed down as it is. I'm already burnt out. And now the preacher's telling me just work harder, just strive more. God, this is too much. 
Look at the energy. Look at the source of energy that Paul is able to do this from. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The Apostle Paul found that rare source of spiritual vitality that only comes from living one's life in unity with Christ. Look at these Bible verses of how Paul said he worked. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's a unity. This next one, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that was in me. Look at that vitality. Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul lived in such a way that it looked like he was running on empty but never ran out of gas like he was a log in a fire, but never actually was being burnt up. Like he was a glass of water being poured out, but never actually found the bottom. And this type of resiliency in our work for Christ, this vitality for Christian living can only be found through living in unity with Christ. And the only way that we can live in unity with Christ is through abiding in God's word and in prayer. It seems simple. It seems like it should be something more. But abiding in God's word and prayer is the way that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is the way that we are propelled with vitality to serve. I've used this image before, but imagine a massive boat, like a pirate ship, with immensely huge sails. Set a ship like this out into the harbor with the sails down, and it will just rock back and forth, being tossed by the waves. But set a ship like this into harbor and lift up the sails, and it will be propelled with an energy that is not from itself that will move it all the way across the ocean by another source of energy. And that's the type of vitality that you can have and the type of resiliency that you can have so that you can speak, so that you can serve, so that you can suffer. And it doesn't mean that having this vitality by being filled by the Holy Spirit will alleviate your burdens. It means though that you will endure through your burdens and your soul will be lifted up in the midst of them so that you can still have peace and joy and contentment. Who needs some of that today? I know I do. I need this desperately because I've been in places where I've felt like I've been burnt out. Nothing can be substituted for this filling of the spirit apart from abiding in the word of Christ and prayer, nothing. But I'll tell you this from personal experience, I've learned we need these two practical wisdoms to be built on top of the foundation of abiding 
if you're gonna have vitality and resiliency to serve the Lord in this way with an energy that's not from yourself on top of the foundation of abiding, you need, I need regular rhythms of rest and I need an appropriate pace for my season of life. There's a reason when God worked by creating the universe that he worked for six days and rested for one. Because he gave us a pattern for our work. Shouldn't we afford ourselves the same grace that God took himself? Christian, I'm honestly not surprised if you feel burnt out if you're not taking a day off. We need regular rhythms of rest. We need a day's off to seek the Lord, to trust God. I don't need to work today because I can be renewed and rejuvenated and revitalized to work again. We need regular rhythms of rest. We also need an appropriate pace of life. Two years ago, when I was newly married and had no kids, it was probably a little too much for me, but there were stretches where I was fine and had vitality being out doing ministry four to five nights a week and taking a master's degree and being married. And it was a little too much, but... At times, the Lord carried me through that. But there's no chance I can go at that pace now. I've got one child who's 14 months old and I have one on the way. And if I did that, my wife would not want to be my wife anymore. (laughs) So my pace now is I'm out one night a week for an elders meeting and one morning a week for a small group. Some of you who are older and don't have kids at home can sustain a pace that I can't. Some of you who have kids at home but are teenagers can sustain a pace that I can't. Some of you who are not married can sustain a pace that none of us can. Hey, man, go, sprint. But know that seasons of life will change and your pace will have to change. And if it doesn't, you're going to not be able to be resilient. But when you have regular rhythms and appropriate pace and you're abiding in Christ, you can strive resiliently with a vitality that when people look at you, they say, that's not them. And it's not you. It's God through you. Joining into the mission of Christ requires a high commitment. But I want to close by asking you this question. Is it honestly worth it? Is it? Is it honestly worth it? A magnet has two polarized ends, right? Negative and positive. And when a magnet comes in contact with another magnet, if the opposite ends are together, they'll attract. But if the negative ends are pushed together, they will be repelled from one another. Some of you may be hearing this this message and you're just like so attracted to it. It's like, yes, yes, I want to give my life for this. Yes, I want to be committed to this. Some of you, though, are hearing this, and you're just like, yeah, it gets a little closer, and you're just like, nah, not for me. And you feel repelled by it. And if that's you, that's okay. When Jesus told his message, a lot of people went away. But if you do feel a little insecure and cringy when you hear this, I want to ask you some questions. If you're just like, nah, this isn't for me, I would ask you, friend, is Christ truly Lord of your life? Because if he's your Lord, he's your master. 
But if you're not submitting to your master's will, I don't know how you can call yourself his servant. I don't know how you can truly call him your savior if you don't call him your Lord. But maybe you're hearing this and you're you're repelled, not because you don't want to do it, because you just feel insecure, like I can't do it. God can use you. When Jesus freed a man who was um, in uh, who was being oppressed by a demon, the people in that town wouldn't accept him. So Jesus left, but he told the man who was just freed from a demon, you go tell them what I did for you, and they'll listen to you. And this guy who was oppressed by a demon for years went that same day and told the message, and people received him. You don't need, God isn't looking for good church strategists. He's not looking for gospel innovators. He's not looking for a new PR campaign for the 21st century so that the message can be palatable. He's just looking for people who say, here I am, send me. And if you're attracted to this message and you want it, then be encouraged by the promise of Christ. The mission of Christ is in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you're here and you're saying, here I am, send me, then go. And go knowing you're not alone. God is with you. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, thank you that you would not only call us your children, but also that you would entrust us to a task. You're the God of the universe. You're the resurrection and the life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You would do a way better job than we would to make the message of Christ known. Yet in your wisdom, you chose to use weak people like us to show that it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. Thank you, God, that you've given us this privilege. Father, I pray for our church God, that you would use us, weak and feeble people who have nothing good in themselves. There is no good in me. I am but a worm and not a man. But Father, thank you that you've given me your Holy Spirit. God, I trust the Holy Spirit and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And since you've given me your Holy Spirit, I'll do what you've assigned me to do. And God, I pray for our church that we all would trust your spirit and believe your spirit and be filled with your spirit and walk by the spirit and would the spirit of Christ do in our day a renewal and a revival and an awakening the same way he's done in generations past, even to Pentecost and the book of Acts. Lord God, would you draw souls to yourself we don't, it doesn't matter if they're drawn into this building, but that they're drawn into your kingdom and that you would send us as your ambassadors and use us, Lord God, that people might be saved. The commitment is high, God, but thank you that you've given us your strength. May we go in this strength in Jesus' name. Amen.